Good morning, Lakeview and guests who've gathered here this morning. This morning's story of the prodigal son has been called the gospel within the gospel. And it's a story that explains so clearly who Jesus is and what he's about. So Luke places the story in chapter 15, which is right close to the center of Jesus' road to Jerusalem, which is Luke 9 to 19. So storytelling, you sometimes have to pay attention to what's in the center of a story in scripture, not just what's at the end of the story, because the story arc sometimes kind of goes like this. It's like there's something's really good right in the middle. So this one is kind of right in the middle of this road to Jerusalem. So before the journey starts to Jerusalem in Luke 9, Jesus has already recruited and consolidated his core team of 12 men. He's dealt with sudden meal crisis when 5,000 people or more were left without food and he quickly made lunch out of one little boy's lunch. He shocked his lead team by beginning to glow while praying on a mountain and meeting with Elijah and Moses who also were glowing. He, um, he stood up in a boat told a storm to peace out. He dealt with infighting about who was the most valuable disciple. He has created a stir in his community. And he doesn't stop making a stir, making a ruckus. So in chapter 9, verse 51, Luke tells us, he says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He's setting his face toward Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is where he will die. Chapter 15 is today's story. And when he gets to Jerusalem, in chapter 19, he starts weeping over it. So whether that weeping is connected to today's story at all remains to be seen. But one of the first things he'll do when he gets to Jerusalem is to overturn the tables when he gets to the temple and he causes a ruckus. But oh my word, he's been causing a ruckus all along the road. He just keeps telling stories that make the religious rulers more and more angry. So today's story in chapter 15 begins like this. Now the tax collectors and the sinners, the outcasts, were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So that's the occasion for this story. Jesus welcomes outcasts and eats with them. So now to the muttering of the Pharisees, this grumbling and complaining and murmuring. Luke is a storyteller who very carefully chooses his vocabulary. Now, Luke actually would have been traveling around with the Apostle Paul Um, They knew each other. So can you imagine, like, sometimes you sit around a fireside with good friends and you talk about things that are going on in the world and you make sense of it. Like, can you imagine the Dr. Luke sitting around a fire with the Apostle Paul as they thought through the life of Jesus and tried to figure out what this all meant? Like, is it possible that this man that, that walked through the earth and then he died and then rose again, like... Could he actually have been God? We're quite used to that. We say to ourselves, God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus was God in the flesh. But these people, as these stories were getting collected, were just figuring this out. 
So Luke is a storyteller who carefully chooses his vocabulary. He's the only New Testament writer to use this word. It's the same word as is used in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 15. After the Israelites have crossed through the Red Sea and God's done this amazing miracle, they get hungry. They've been without water for three days and they get to this pond which has water, but the water is bitter. And so what do they do? They start muttering. They start complaining. It also happens when the spies got back from this land where there's like milk and honey and 10 of the spies are like, the people are too big. We're never going to make it. And the people start muttering. It's like, what are you doing bringing us out here where there's nothing? Should have stayed in Egypt. So the muttering kind of leads to often to food. It led to manna and quail. It led to God sweetening the waters. So this is the word that Luke uses here. It's the same word. And it's just before God does an amazing work among them. So I want you to hear the echo of the people of God complaining while God is in the middle of a mighty work among them. And before I go on, I also need to tell you about a storytelling technique called story stacking. You may not know the term, but I'm quite sure you're familiar with the practice. Here's an example. Once upon a time, there were three little pigs whose mother sent them out to make their way into the world. First little pig bought a load of straw, built himself a nice little house with straw. He'd just finished building the house when a big wolf comes and he says, little pig, little pig, can I come in, can I come in? And the little pig goes, not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. So the wolf huffs and he puffs. And what happens? He blows the house down, right? Okay, so second little pig buys a load of sticks, builds a house of sticks. The wolf comes and he huffs and he puffs and he huffs and he puffs. He has to puff a little bit longer. House falls down. So you see the story pattern. Third little pig comes along. He's built a house out of bricks. Wolf comes along, huffs and he puffs and he 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 cannot blow the house down. So the end of the story is that the third little pig um, and possibly all of his brothers sit in the house of bricks and the crazy wife and the crazy wolf tries to blow the house down. See, the story was begun to be told. It was published in the 1800s. It's a long, like the story's got a long shelf life and it was probably told long before that, but it probably wouldn't have survived as many generations of children if it was just about a little pig who built a house out of brick and a crazy wife, wolf, tried to blow the house down. I said wife, didn't I? <laughs> so you have three little pigs, you've got, they buy supplies, build a house, wolf comes and the house either falls or stands. That's the pattern. Luke actually uses something similar. He talks about a wise builder builds a house on a foundation of rock and the storms come and the floods come up and the house, does it stand or does it fall? It stands on the rock. And then there's a foolish builder who builds on the sand and the storm comes and the floods go up and the house falls flat. So that one, the only thing that stays the same is a storm. Everything else is flipped around, but it's this story stacking that makes the point. So today is one of those three stories that Jesus tells, and while the story of the prodigal is totally strong enough to stand on its own and beautiful enough, there is so much that we hear when we hear the echoes of the three stories together. So the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers start muttering, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, and Jesus hears the muttering. And he turns to them, and he says, 
So suppose that one of you has a hundred sheep and you lost one. Wouldn't you leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the lost one until you found it? And when you found it, you can be sure that you'd put it across your shoulders rejoicing. And when you got home, you'd call your friends and neighbors saying, come with me, celebrate, I found my lost sheep. Count on it. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over the 99 good people in no need of rescue. So with this story, Jesus has masterfully taken control of the muttering crowd, and he's reframed the issue. He shifts the setting from a scandalous meal to a rescue mission. And he also kind of disarms the Pharisees a bit by giving them the benefit of the doubt. Suppose this happened. Wouldn't you do this? And you might see the Pharisees nodding, relaxing their posture, uncrossing their arms. I mean, maybe. I don't know if the Pharisees ever relaxed when Jesus started telling stories, but who knows? Maybe this felt safe to them. And it's also not a new metaphor. So it's a, it's a story of a shepherd, and the shepherd of the sheep is a primary metaphor for God in the Hebrew scriptures. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I will not want. Jesus casually says, suppose one of you, but everyone would recognize that in reframing this scandalous meal as a rescue, he's also placing himself in the center of the story as the good shepherd, who's not only welcoming outcasts, but he's going after them. Psalm 23, the shepherd leads the sheep, but he doesn't chase them. He doesn't go after them. Here, um, Jesus is teaching us something new. God is doing something new with incarnation. God has become flesh. God is going after humanity through Jesus to rescue. God, the creator, has become a seeker. And Jesus begins to tell what this looks like. So story one is a good shepherd or the lost sheep. The main pieces are something is lost, something is sought, something is found, and then celebrated. And then um, heaven echoes the celebration. So lost, sought, found, celebrated, and then heaven's echo of the celebration. So now we have the second story in the stack. Imagine a woman who has 10 coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp? and scour the house looking in every nook and cranny until she finds it. And when she finds it, you can be sure she's going to call her friends and neighbors, celebrate with me, I've, lost, I've found my lost coin. Count on it. That's the kind of party that God's angels throw every time one lost soul turns to God. Celebration on earth and an echo of this fantastic celebration in heaven. What kind of food would you order at a party like that? Do you know, Jordan? What kind of food do you love? Birthday cake? Yes, maybe birthday cake. There would be food that each person loves in this. So we have a rhythm established here. Something is lost, something is sought, something is found and celebrated. And the central figure is the seeker. Now, we don't hear much in these stories, the first two, about the thing lost, but about the one seeking and finding and celebrating. And do you hear the zooming in, too? The first story is one in a hundred. 
Then the next one is one in 10. And now Jesus goes to one in two. There was once a man who had two sons. We know the rhythm, right? We know the seeker, and we know what will be lost. It's a son. And the younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. Books and books and books have been written to help us understand the depth of loss in these two lines. I have loved Kenneth Bailey's books about the prodigal son. He's written some books about the cross and the prodigal and Jacob and the prodigal. He has lived and studied Middle Eastern culture, knows its languages, knows the um, Christian Arab communities who've been shaped by these stories, knows the unchanging thread of honor culture that still weaves through the agricultural communities. Our Canadian reference points can only really begin to understand what would be seen in this act. It's a flippant wish for an inheritance without the giver, and it's as good as informing your dad that you really wish he was dead. It's the shaming of a family. It's the dividing of an inheritance, taking out key earning power long before it's done. And there's also a sense of urgency, of hurry. The son wants right now what's coming. He's had it with life in, in the house. And it wasn't long before he packed his bags and left for a distant country. So you could understand this to mean that he liquidated all of his assets and left town as quickly as possible. Sold what needed selling. And you could also expect that no respectable person in that village would actually have contributed to the shame of his father by buying any of the things that the son was trying to sell. He would have had to go far from the core of the village to find anybody who would sell what he was selling. So this would have caused the further undoing of the father's reputation in the village as well as that of the son. If the villages do anything here, it would be to reinforce the shame of this act and they will never let the son forgive, forget this if he ever did try to return. The villages have a long memory. And from the beginning, the description of this father is impossible to understand. It's without parallel in Middle Eastern literature. There are not stories of dads who do this. He is not deceived. His undoing for the sake of his son is fully intentional. And there are echoes here of another story. There was a weak father who was deceived by a younger brother who stole a birthright. It's possible that Jesus is even echoing the foundational story of, of Israel, where Jacob and Esau and their, their old father um, engaged in something like this. Jacob deceived his dad, took off with the birthright, and the older brother Esau was left at home angry. And Jesus places himself into the position of the father. Oh, pay attention to the echoes of this story in scripture as well as maybe in your own mind. 
So it wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country, and there, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted the whole thing. He wasted every bit of money that he was given. And Jesus starts going into deep details, creating a lost, shamed outcast, perhaps far worse than what the Pharisees have seen or are protesting here. This son had not just wandered. He had not just misplaced through no fault of his own. He left and shattered his father, his family, and the loss is even further described. After he'd gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to feel it. So he signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any of that either. That brought him to his senses. So this is possibly the first departure from the story patterns. Neither coin nor sheep ever turned back toward the seeker, right? And there's an important moment here. Is this the third story's shift? What is the son pivoting towards? Is he pivoting from separation toward reconciliation to the father? Or from pig slop to good food in his belly? If the story pivots to the son here, the son initiates his own salvation. Ken Bailey argues hard that the son has not turned to the father to be reconciled. He says the son has now devised another plan for him to be independently living outside of his father's house, outside the boundaries of family, and he develops a rehearsed speech that will be his only chance to manipulate his father into giving him a salary as a hired hand so that he can still earn his own independence. Father, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Hire me as one of your hired hands. Do you hear heaven here in the first two stories? Heaven is echoing the celebration, but here the son calls heaven in almost as a witness to divide him further from the father. And in turning back to the village to face the shaming ceremony, because the villagers have not forgotten, the villagers may be waiting for him to come back, but it's not with anticipation or grace to face the shaming ceremony for losing the inheritance, and he may even be the most lost when he comes to the border of the village. He got up and he went home to his father. Now the story rhythm kicks in again with a shift in pace because the seeker, the father, goes after his lost, lost son. And if the son enters the village, the villagers will begin this shunning and shaming ceremony, which they know well, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. That is a run of shame, my friends. It would have been shameful for the son to be walking through that village, but it was shameful for a Middle Eastern uh, respected father to pull his garments up so that he could run. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
He doesn't finish his speech. He doesn't make a suggestion that he return as a hired hand. Because at this moment, for the prodigal son, this is the moment when he's found. He lets himself be found. He doesn't finish his rehearsed speech asking to earn his way out of the deep hole he's created, like the sheep, like the coin. He lets the seeker, his father, find him. And his father's act of coming down into the street, accepting shame for running through the streets to get to his son, rather than the son being spurned and sent away by the village, has rescued his son. But the father said to his servants, who seemed to have been running down the street with him because they're right there, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it, let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine, he was dead, but he's alive again. He was lost, but he is found. And the father and his servants, they clothe him and they honor him and they bring him safely through the village that would have been ready to throw him out and they begin to celebrate. So the story vibrates a bit about the edges, doesn't it? But basically it's the same pattern as the first two. There is a seeker, there is someone lost, there is someone chased, someone is found and celebration begins. So now all that's left is the celebration. But every one of these stories tampers with the listener's understanding of God. Every variation builds on the stories they know, and then it runs out. It leaks out. It breaks out, as God has done in Jesus. So the Pharisees who are listening, the mutterers, who are still part of the story, though I think they're quite quiet at this point, they may have been horrified at the shame of the father running down the road and disgracing himself, both as he distributed the inheritance and then as he's running to welcome this boy home. But really, the story hasn't been about them. It's been an attempt, they might think, by Jesus to defend his eating with the rabble. But there's an older son coming in from the fields who hears a celebration and begins to mutter. And here the pattern of the stories breaks down because the first stories have a rescue and a celebration followed by heaven's celebration and the third story has a celebration followed by a rejection of the celebration. Jesus has taken a roundabout through two and a half stories and suddenly the Pharisees are staring into a mirror. They are the older son muttering at a celebration. And Jesus is calling the outcasts his family. The welcome and rescue of a lost son has pushed the elder, obedient son out into the fringes. And the father responds immediately. He pivots. He's the seeker who knows when one is lost. And now the father humiliates himself again. For the second time that day, he leaves the feast celebrating his younger son, leaves his honored guests, and goes for a public conversation and confrontation with his son. I have slaved and never 
disobeyed you. But I was not even worthy of a feast of a kid. You didn't even slaughter a, a goat for me. It's almost a mirror image of what the younger son said. The younger son said, I've sinned against heaven and you, not worthy to be called your son. God the Father, God the Son here running to the prodigal, pleading with the eldest son, doing everything that's needed for reconciliation. Does not want hired hands trying to earn their way back to the table in shame. Does not want legalistic children trying to do the right thing to earn their inheritance or their reward wants the mess of sons and daughters at the table. Honored not because of anything that they've done, but because he ran to them. He runs to us. And the story ends there with the father pleading, please, please come in. Your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. But at the end, it's the older brother who's lost. The rule-following Pharisee who really thought they were doing what was needed find themselves outside the house, annoyed at the sound of celebration, angry that their share of the inheritance is once again decreased. But Jesus in the Father says, you always had me. All I have is yours. You always had me. All you have is yours. This helps to make sense of so many of, of Jesus' other stories too, doesn't it? You always have me. Whether you labor for an hour or a day, whether you followed every rule or whether you wasted everything, I am the seeker. And the story ends without any resolution. But Jesus weeps when he sees Jerusalem, knows that his role in redeeming his children is not quite done. The invitation is for us too to come to the table. However you get lost, whether you're distracted, whether you have no voice, no agency in your decisions, whether you have wasted everything, or whether you find anger welling up in you and you cannot face Jesus, you cannot face a God who's like this. Whatever this is, God leaves the others who are safe, who always have their shepherd, their father, to find you. You are invited to the celebration that this generous, lavish, forgiving father demonstrated by Jesus has prepared for you. And the love of our father, our creator, our seeker is not like anything you have experienced. Thank you.